I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole passage for us. But we'll be only looking at the first two verses this morning. Habakkuk 3, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan and the Holy One from, the Mount, from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling forth many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come on people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the truth that we heard from the kids as they told us a little bit of church history and also as they sang to us the beautiful psalm of Psalm 91. 
And Lord, we do ask that what they sing would truly become the heartbeat of their souls, that they would treasure that truth and that we would treasure those truths as well. And Lord, as we look to your word now, as we look at Habakkuk chapter 3, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and that you would give us hearts, softened hearts, to truly receive your truth this morning. Help us to place ourselves under your word and not above it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have seen um, thus far in the book of Habakkuk, um, well, here we're in the final chapter, but we've covered the first two chapters, and we saw in the very beginning, in chapters 1, verse 1 to 4, Habakkuk make his objection and complaint to God regarding God's seeming indifference to the sin and oppression of Israel. He makes his complaint to God and he's wondering why God has not acted, why God has not disciplined Israel for its sin and oppression. And so God responds to Habakkuk by telling him to look and see what he's doing among the nations. That is, he's raising up the wicked Babylon to be his instrument of judgment upon Israel. We saw that in chapters 1, verse 5 to 11. And this, of course only further angers Habakkuk. For he questions whether God is just in the ways in which he works. And we see that questioning in chapters 1, verse 12 to 17. He wonders how it's possible for God to be morally good in using a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation like Israel. And you actually see in those verses Habakkuk going, God, is is mankind simply like the fish of the sea to you? See, Habakkuk's in turmoil. He's not at peace with God, nor his ways. And he demands an explanation from God. He demands a response. It's almost as though he puts God on trial. Prove your innocence, God. And God graciously responds once again from chapter, basically all of chapter 2. And he tells him the secret to it all. And that is this. The righteous shall live by faith, and the wicked are those whose souls are puffed up and not upright within them. That is, the wicked do not ultimately get away with their evil. And then he declares to Habakkuk, that Babylon will not get away with their wickedness and immorality. He declares the five woes against the Babylonians and really any nation or people that live according to the spirit of Babylon. In short, God reassures Habakkuk that no sin will go unpunished. God will uphold justice because he is a just and morally good God. Babylon will be held accountable for their crimes. That's chapters 1 and 2. And now we come to the final chapter, which is the final response of Habakkuk. And we see that it's a prayer by Habakkuk. And it seems that this prayer actually became a part of the liturgical worship of Israel. It follows a similar pattern to that of the Psalms. 
For example, it begins with a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigeyunoth. Now, we don't really know what that's a reference to, but you also have the three references to Selah, which is often used in the Psalms. And then, of course, it ends in verse 19 with, to the choir choir master with string instruments. In other words, Habakkuk's prayer becomes a prayer for the covenant people of God, especially in times of turmoil and distress. And so here in chapter 3, I want us to see that there's a major shift that has taken place in Habakkuk's thinking and in his relation to God. Habakkuk has had his quarrel with God. And now in chapter 3, I think we see a surrendered man. It's as though he's had his Job moment. He has made his complaint. God has spoken and revealed himself to him. And before such a revelation, Habakkuk no longer has a complaint. Rather, he has come to accept the just and merciful ways of God in this world. Though he may not fully understand God's ways, he has come to a place where he can truly say, the Lord's ways are perfect and always righteous and good. Even when what he perceives with his eyes don't seem to fit, doesn't seem to fit with that because he knows that the righteous live by faith and not by sight. Now, Habakkuk's last words can be broken down into three parts. The first is his actual prayer that he makes in verse 2, his final requests that he lays before God. And then in verses 3 to 15, he expounds this glorious vision of God and his work that without doubt is prophetic, but the vision itself in many ways retells the redemptive workings of God amongst Israel's history. And then in verses 16 and 19, Habakkuk expresses his devotion, his trust, and delight in God that even though the circumstances are dreadful, He believes God is enough. And so this morning, all I want to do is look at Habakkuk's prayer in verse 2 and ponder what it is that Habakkuk prays before the Lord. And the first thing we see is Habakkuk's awe and reverence before God, his fear before God. Look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, Do I fear? Habakkuk says he's heard the report of God and his work. That is, he's heard of God's work, and as a result, he expresses that he is overcome with fear. A sense of trembling and awe in light of who God is and what he has done. Now, this report of God can also be understood as the voice of God. I have heard your voice, O God. He has heard the voice of God, and in hearing the voice of God, he has heard about the work of God, and he is overcome with fear and trembling. But what is this report? What is it that he has heard? Well, most likely, it's precisely what God has declared to him in the previous chapters, but it's also probably what God has done in Israel's history. The rest of chapter 3 demonstrates that Habakkuk was 
pondering what God had done through the Exodus and in bringing Israel into the promised land. And as he ponders what God has said and done, both in the past and in the present, his only response is one of awe and trembling before Almighty God. The works of God in history create in Habakkuk's soul trepidation. Who is this God that I dared to wrestle with? Now his response, what he's feeling, shouldn't surprise us if we have a good grasp of the rest of the scriptures. It shouldn't surprise us if we know who this God is. Any time in the scriptures when God speaks or reveals himself or acts in history, the response of the individual or the people is always one of fear and trembling. You think of Israel at Mount Sinai when when God manifests his glory upon the mountain through the medium of thunder, smoke, lightning, and fire. How do the people of Israel respond? Exodus 20, 18 to 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They were so overwhelmed with what they were beholding and hearing that they pleaded with Moses, Moses, you alone speak to us. We cannot bear the voice of God. Or you think of Isaiah who sees the glory of the Lord And is so overwhelmed in what he sees, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, he pronounces judgment upon himself. And then you think of the transfiguration of Jesus and the response of the three disciples in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They heard the voice of God. This was Mount Sinai again. The cloud descends upon the mountain where Jesus is and they hear the voice of God and the disciples fall down in fear and trembling. They were terrified. And then, of course, you think of the Apostle John in Revelation when he's given a glimpse at the glory of Jesus Christ. And John tells us that when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet 
as though he were dead. And I think Habakkuk has had a similar experience. He has heard the report or the voice of God, pondered his works, and the only proper response is one of awe and trembling. See, I think a really important question for each of us to ask is, does my understanding of God produce in me a holy fear? Does my understanding of God produce in me a holy fear? Or has my understanding of God become so domesticated that the notion of trembling and fear is completely unreasonable when we think about who God is? When you think of God, do you think of a dangerous lion or a domesticated house cat? There's a reason why the writer of Hebrews can say in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's fearful when you are not right with the living God. Or you think of Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, just after the writer of Hebrews speaks of this unshakable kingdom that we've been given through Jesus. He says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? He says this with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You see, I think one of the reasons we tend to struggle with the idea of the fear of God is due to, in all honesty, our complete humanizing of God. Our understanding of God is not the transcendent, self-sufficient, holy, almighty God revealed in the scriptures. We are far more comfortable with a God who is like us rather than a God who is utterly different from us. But as Babing states, the great Reformed theologian, the distance between God and us is the gulf between the infinite and the finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, between the all and the nothing. We need to recover the transcendent God of the scriptures. Let me just read to you a brief articulation of God from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And I want you to ask yourself this. Is what I'm hearing an articulation of who you understand God to be? Now, there may be some words that you might not grasp, but in general, is what I'm about to read, which is basically all scripture, is what I'm about to read the way in which you perceive God. Listen to this. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. That is, he is existent in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. We cannot articulate what God is. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, 
dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to him are all things, and he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. That is, he beholds all things at one time. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, servants, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. That's a brief description of the God of the Scriptures. Is that the God you claim to worship? We have humanized and domesticated God. You see, all of us know that if we saw that there was an F5 tornado, that is the largest tornado possible in the distance, that the proper response to that tornado would be to seek refuge somewhere, hoping that you'll be protected from the force and power of the tornado. In other words, it's a rational trembling and fear because you're aware of how powerful and dangerous that tornado is. It's a proper response to the sheer power of this force of nature. And how much more should we tremble knowing that a tornado is limited in its power, whereas God is infinite in power? See, to behold the majesty and power of God is something we could not bear nor fathom. But there is a difference between the tornado and God. Do you know what the difference between the tornado and God is? That tornado is just sheer power, whereas God is not just sheer power. God is also good, pure, loving, merciful and holy, and therefore our approach to God is different than that of a tornado. You see, if we understand who God is rightly, we also know that he's relational. And despite him being an all-consuming fire, 
we can know him. This is why Habakkuk, though he feels fear, he is still able to communicate with God. He is still able to commune with God. I often bring this illustration up, but it's because I think it just captures the idea so well. The the way C.S. Lewis captures Aslan, I think, captures so powerfully what it's like to relate to God. Aslan is a lion. There's nothing safe about him. He is dangerous, he is majestic, and he is powerful. But he's good. See, on the one hand, there are moments, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia, there are moments where C.S. Lewis presents Aslan in such a way that I feel as though I could stroke my hand through his mane and feel completely safe. And then there are times where C.S. Lewis presents Aslan and my heart trembles wondering if my last breath has come upon me. See, in the same creature that is Aslan, I can feel both utterly safe and secure and absolute fear and trembling. And I think that's the same with God. And so Habakkuk, as he hears the report of God and ponders the works of God, he is overcome with fear and awe. But it's not the kind of awe and fear that causes him to flee from God. Rather, it's the kind of awe and fear that cries out, do it again. Do it again. And that's what we see next in his prayer. In the second part of his prayer, he makes a threefold request. And the first part of his request is for God to once again work as he has in the past. Habakkuk asks asks God to revive and make known his work once again. Look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now you would think that if God's work causes him fear, he would say, don't do it again. That's not what he does. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Revive your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. Make your works known again. You see, Habakkuk requests that one, God would revive, renew his work. And secondly, he would make his work known once again. That is, is, he would reveal it. He's been reflecting on God's works, especially that of the Exodus, as he describes in verses 3 to 15. And his heart cries out, God, Revive your work. Act again. Show your glory once again on earth. Now there are a few things that we can conclude from this request. The first is this. Habakkuk knows all too well what it's like to live feeling and thinking where are the great works of God that have been told from the past. He knows that feeling. Quite frankly, he knows experientially what many of us sometimes feel. God, show us your glory. Show us your works. And it seems that nothing really changes. Where are the great miracles of God? You see, quite often when we read the biblical narrative, we see the miraculous. God acting in a miraculous way. But the fact of the matter is, much of Israel's history actually lacks the miraculous intervention of God. 
Habakkuk was living in a period of Israel's history where they had not seen the miraculous hand of God at work. They only knew the reports. Much of Israel's history is often longing for God to act and work in the same way he did with their forefathers. And I think sometimes we feel a similar way. We feel as though we have not seen the works of God. We have only heard the reports. Now, not only does he ask God to revive his work, he also asks him to make it known. Revive and reveal your work. You see, Habakkuk understands that the only hope for his people is for God to see, for God to show forth his work to the people of Israel, that they might behold it and be amazed by it. God, you've delivered Israel in the past. Deliver them again. God, you've brought renewal to Israel in the past. God, bring renewal Again, show forth your work. You see, I think Habakkuk captures so clearly what our hearts and our longing should be for the church in Canada and for our nation as well. As citizens of Canada, there are things that we can do politically to better our nation. And I don't ever want to downplay that. We want to see a more just society, and one of the ways in which we can do that is through political means. But politics will not save the church in North America, nor will it save our nation. The only hope for the church and for our nation is a renewal from God upon his church and upon this nation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the obsession of politics today, I think, only reveals the spiritual starvation that is taking place in our nation. In other words, the political upheaval in our society is actually a result of the spiritual famine that is at work in our nation. Gary Soul Morrison has written a review on some of Solzhenitsyn's, I never say his name right, Uh, newly translated works that he wrote in the past. Solzhenitsyn was a novelist and a very outspoken critic against communist Russia, and he suffered horrifically because of it. But Morrison writes a review on his new translated works and observes Solzhenitsyn's view of politics and faith. And he says this in speaking about The Red Wheel, one of Solzhenitsyn's works. He says this, Despite its relentless focus on political events, the red wheel, that is his work, paradoxically, it instructs us that politics is not the most important thing in life. To the contrary, the main cause of political horror, like the Bolshevik Revolution, is the overvaluing of politics itself. It is supremely dangerous to presume that if only the right social system could be established, life's fundamental problems would be resolved. Like the great realist novelist of the 19th century, Solzhenitsyn believed that as he stated in Rebuilding Russia, now these are Solzhenitsyn's words here, political activity is by no means the principal mode of human life. The more energetic the political activity in a country, the greater is the loss to spiritual life. 
politics must not be swallowed up. Sorry, politics must not swallow up all of a people's spiritual and creative energies. Beyond upholding its rights, mankind must defend its soul. Mankind must defend its soul. The more energetic the political activity in a country, the greater is the loss to spiritual life. And that's the words of a man who lived through it. See, politics is important. It's important and we need to be citizens and we need to be faithful as citizens. But the only hope for the church and for our nation is for God to renew and revive, to pour out his spirit upon the hearts of people, upon our hearts. Habakkuk has pondered the works of God and because of this, he's hopeful that God can and will do it again. Are you hopeful? Now, I want you to notice something. Twice in his request, where he says, revive and show forth, he says, in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now, what's he referring to when he says, in the midst of the years? Well, it's not actually super clear. But Habakkuk understands that Israel is going to face God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. And I think he's asking God that while Israel is under Babylonian judgment, revive your work once again and make it known. In the midst of judgment, show forth your works. And I think God answers Habakkuk in two ways. God, in fact, does revive his people while in captivity, and he makes his works known. Just read the book of Daniel. You'll see what God does while Israel is under Babylonian judgment. Also, I think it's referring to the end of the Babylonian captivity when God brings his people back to the promised land. Habakkuk knows that dark days lay ahead for the people of Israel, but in the midst of those years, Habakkuk is pleading with God, Revive and renew and show forth your glorious works of old. You see, God can do both. God can bring darkness and God can revive at the same time. And that's why I think the last part of his request is in your judgment against Israel, God. Don't forget mercy. Don't forget mercy. Remember mercy, as he says, in wrath, remember mercy. This is a humble plea on the part of Habakkuk. He has come to accept that God's judgment is going to fall upon Israel for their wickedness. God is going to chastise his covenant children. He has come to realize that Israel is deserving of such judgment. But in his heartbrokenness and in his realizing the purity of God's justice, he pleads with God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Remember, in chapter 1, Habakkuk was wondering why God was allowing Israel to get away with its own evil. He wanted justice. But now that he understands the purity and holiness of God's justice, he pleads for mercy upon the people of Israel. 
You see, if we truly understood the severity of God's holy judgment, we would feel pity for even the worst of our enemies. God, in your holy wrath, remember mercy. Now, it's important to understand that God doesn't forget his mercy. God's infinite in knowledge, he cannot forget. To do so would be to make him finite in his understanding. Habakkuk is simply expressing what he feels in human words. And Habakkuk has good grounds to make this plea before God based upon what God has revealed about himself. You remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory? In Exodus 34, we're given the account where God shows his back to Moses. Literally, quite literally, his bum. That's, that's the Hebrew, his backside. In Exodus 34, he shows Moses his glory, but he pronounces his name to Moses. And this is what God's name is. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's name. The merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. It's his name. This is who you are, God, Habakkuk is saying. So in your holy wrath against sin, remember your name. Remember that you are a God of mercy. You see, Habakkuk understands what mercy is. Many people today, when they talk about mercy, they think of it in terms of something they deserve. But mercy is precisely something that one does not deserve. You see, Habakkuk understands that Israel does not deserve God's mercy. If they deserved his mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. He has come to grasp that Israel is deserving of what is about to befall them at the hands of the Babylonians. And it's precisely because of this that he cries out to God for mercy in the midst of judgment. There are no alternatives. There are no excuses. His only hope is to cry out to God for mercy. When I was a, a younger man, um, about 18, 19, I had um, uh, uh, an issue with speeding. <laughs> I like to drive pretty fast. And um, within less than a two-year time span, I got uh, four speeding tickets. And um, I should have had five, but the guy left me off, let me off because he knew my brother. Um, but um, I had four speeding tickets, and so I had, to, I had an appointment to go see, I don't know what they're called, maybe a prosecutor, to meet with this lady to determine whether they were going to suspend my license. And so I went to this meeting, and I'm there, and she was quite serious, and it was just her and I in this room. And, um, and clearly she was trying to demonstrate that she had all the power. And so she starts going through my record, 
And she starts, um, she, she says, well, here you were going 20 over. And, I, and then I looked at her and I said, actually, I was going 40 over. And uh, the officer dropped it by 20. And, um, and she goes, why would you tell me that? Because it's the truth. <laughs> and then she goes through my, my next three and the same thing. I said, all of them, I got my ticket dropped a little bit. And she was shocked that I would tell her. She's like, no one has ever told me that. And I said, I'm not here trying to make my case for why you should let me go. I'm guilty as charged. And I said, I'm here simply to ask for mercy. And she said to me, no one has ever said that. Every time someone comes into my office, they're always trying to prove why they should be let off. Oh, I do have a speeding ticket, but I care for the poor on Saturday. I had no excuse. I simply gave myself over into her hands and I asked for mercy. And because I did that, she granted me mercy. And she told me, if you get another speeding ticket, you're done. <laughs> but she showed me mercy. You see, if I went in there trying to make my case for why she should let me off the hook, 100% she would not have let me off the hook. And that's the same when it comes to God. If we try to prove ourselves, God, yeah, I'm guilty here, but I've done this over here. It won't work. You have to cast yourself at the mercy of God. And that's precisely what Habakkuk did. God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Remember mercy. And did God honor Habakkuk's request? The answer is yes. God did punish Israel for its wickedness, but he did not destroy Israel completely. A remnant was sent into captivity, and because of God's mercy, he brought them back to the land. Not only that, the lineage of David was not cut off during the captivity, which was very possible. But God remembered his mercy and his promise to David because it's through the lineage of David that the Messiah would come and the Lord Jesus comes, the great deliverer, because God remembered his mercy to Israel. It's through the Lord Jesus that the mercy of God has been most powerfully revealed. You see, God remembered his mercy and demonstrated his mercy in a far more, more glorious manner than Israel returning to the land. God has shown his work and revealed his mercy through sending forth his son to die for the sins of the world. There is mercy for anyone who would simply acknowledge their need for mercy and seek the mercy of God found in Jesus. You see, the Bible makes clear that apart from the mercy of God, we're all lost and hopeless. We're in the same situation as Israel and Babylon. Judgment awaits us in the future. For just as God judged Israel and Babylon, so all of humanity will be judged by Him because of our sin that so resembles the sins of Israel and Babylon. And our only hope is to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And as Aquinas says, God is more ready to show mercy than to punish. It's only those who know they need mercy that will seek for it and will find it. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? 
Jesus tells this parable and it says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's the key. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's he doing? He's trying to demonstrate his own righteousness before God by comparing himself to other men rather than comparing himself to the righteousness of God. God, I'm better than these men. I'm not like the prostitute. I'm not like the tax collector. This happens all the time with people. You seek to evangelize them and the first thing they do is, well, you know, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, good on you. You should applaud yourself for that. So not only does he compare himself to those who are worse, then he begins to talk about all he does for God. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's he doing? He's exactly what he's described. He's doing exactly what Jesus said or defined these people. They trusted in themselves. But then he contrasts this Pharisee to the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. That's humility. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And notice, notice he doesn't make any other explanation to God. He doesn't say to God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because God, on Saturdays I'm good and on Sundays I fall short. There's no explanations. There is simply this, I am a sinner and that is it, be merciful to me. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, that is, accepted before God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Which man are you? This is Habakkuk's prayer. He asks God to once again revive and renew, to show forth his work, and to remember mercy in the midst of judgment. May this be our prayer as well. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask and pray what Habakkuk has prayed. Revive our hearts. Renew our hearts. Revive the church. And revive our nation. And in the midst of your judgment, God, Show mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.